Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Health Conscious. We're so excited that you're joining us this week for what we think will be a different episode, and we hope you enjoy it. This week's episode is about senior living with two great experts in the field of senior living. So if it's something that you've always been interested in or something you haven't thought about, I think regardless, this episode is going to be very helpful. Next week's episode, we hope you'll stick with us, will also be another fantastic episode with the, some folks from Epic, uh, the EHR system. They're going to be talking about what they've been doing during the pandemic to help hospitals and healthcare systems um, navigate this tumultuous time, and also what they're doing to step into the social determinants of, of health and population health aspects of healthcare, which is becoming oh so important. So please, if you haven't already, leave us a review in whatever podcast app you're listening in, and make sure you subscribe so you're getting the most up-to-date episodes of our podcast when we publish them. This week, we're talking to two esteemed guests, Brooke Hollis and Jim Sherman. We'll start with Brooke, who um, is currently a professor of practice in the policy analysis and management and the executive director of the Cornell University Institute for Healthy Futures and an associate director of the Sloan Program in Health, Administra uh, in Health Administration here at Cornell University. In addition to his teaching, his work is largely involved with connecting students to industry and alumni external relations. He loves making those connections, and he's oh so good at it, um, as Christian and I can attest. Um, his background prior to his work at Cornell includes 30-plus years in a variety of leadership roles. His work as a partner in mergers and acquisition advisory firms has involved consulting and transaction advisory work for healthcare and professional service firms in over 20 states and Canada, working with a variety of acquirers and potential partners, including private equity and public or privately held firms, domestic and international. His academic background includes a master of Business Administration and the Sloan Certificate in Hospital and Health Services Administration of Cornell University. He also holds a Master of Architecture and Urban Design from Washington University in St. Louis. Our second guest is Jim Sherman, who just retired in 2018 from Daughtry Mortgage LLC after spending more than 45 years working in the healthcare, seniors, housing, and long-term care industries. During his career, he worked as an advisor, CPA, and lender, becoming an expert at providing financing and financial advisory services to a significant number of clients, both domestically and internationally. He's worked as a CPA in these areas and has experience in healthcare and senior housing in both the public and private sectors, for-profit and non-for-profit entities. Prior to that, he was the executive vice president of Capital One Bank, and prior to Capital One for 12 years, he served as the senior managing director for Red Capital Group, responsible for senior housing and long-term care division. He's a graduate of McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, and received his CPA certificate from there as well. We really think you're going to enjoy this episode. It's a bit different than what we've done before, but we hope that you'll stay tuned, listen, and enjoy learning about senior living, which is becoming more and more important of a sector of healthcare every single day. Thanks for listening. All right, Brooke and Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you both doing today? Great. Great. Thanks for including us. Oh, of course. I mean, this has just been a topic that Peyton and I have been speaking about for a long time, having an episode about. Um, it's, a, it's a growing and moving um, uh, industry within healthcare um, and some exciting trends happening. So we're going to cover quite a bit during the length of this podcast. We're going to start off talking about the future of senior living. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, those career opportunities and attracting young talent to the industry. Um, and, and some financing questions as well. But let's first get started just talking a little bit 
um, about the um, the senior living community of the future. Of course, there are lots of market, different market pressures and environmental pressures and regulatory pressures that are being placed on senior living right now. Um, what what given the trends in the space, what do you see the the senior community um, senior living community of the future looking like? Well, it, this is that's a tough question right now during the pandemic because. There's a lot of discussions about changes that the pandemic has brought about um, and how many of them will be permanent, nobody really knows. But I think we will continue with having multi-levels of service uh, in seniors housing. Um, you know, during the pandemic, folks have not wanted to move into independent. They've wanted to stay home because once they get into a project, they haven't been able to socialize to the extent that they would like to. So that has been an inhibitor and independent living during the pandemic has occupancies have fallen and um, assisted living and Alzheimer's occupancies have remained fairly stable, but they've also fallen. They've fallen the least because it's more need driven. And nursing homes have been a disaster. Uh, as we all know, a lot of projects uh, were hit first. Uh, nursing homes were hit first. So their occupancies declined a lot. So moving forward, I think that what we, what we can begin to see is that there may be more smaller units um, in seniors housing. They won't be much smaller but the cost of construction has gone up significantly. And I think that we will see maybe some better laid out units, but we're gonna see, I think, a bit smaller units. The buildings will probably stay about the same size. They average, you know, for assisted living and um, Alzheimer's memory care, is about 80 to 100, 110 units. And I think that will, that will probably continue. But I think one of the big changes that we're gonna have in the future is there's gonna be more affordable units. Um, you know, there's been a number of them built in the country, especially in the Chicago area. And I think, you know, Senior Lifestyles was in a position where they were able to get a lot of the surrounding towns and uh, communities to Chicago to provide them land and provide them incentives to build affordable housing. And I think we're gonna see a lot more affordable housing and even towns that I think license uh, or approve the construction of market rate facilities, you know, they may be like some of the apartment units where they are gonna require some affordability component. So I think that's, that's something that, um, we're really going to have to study and figure out because affordable is a difficult type of building to build because you need, obviously, the construction is not going to change that much in cost. So you need incentives. You need government programs that will assist either in the construction or in some of the operation expenses. You're going to need a reduction potentially in real estate taxes for affordability to work. And how the buildings are designed, they're probably going to be more in the rural area or outside of the downtown areas because they're not going to be able to build going up, but they're going to build going out. And, you know, we could see 
smaller units there where, and you can also, we'll probably see some double occupancies. So I think the affordability piece is something that's desperately needed, but it's also now being constructed and taking place. And there are some companies that are putting their toe in the water um, to, to build those types of facilities. But I think we're also going to see another dynamic with individuals because as we all know there's a lot more same-sex couples and we're probably going to have a different dynamic that takes place in the buildings, just the residents alone. Um, you know, right now we do have a lot of same-sex couples in buildings, but it's usually, you know, maybe two brothers, two sisters, uh, that type, but I think as, as the awareness um, or the number of same-sex uh, couples being married takes place, uh, I think that's going to pressure seniors housing to have a little bit different dynamic and how it will be accepted by old people, if I could say that, is probably going to be a, a bit of a, a difficult uh, program. There may be facilities uh, properties built just for same-sex couples uh, and singles that were part of a same-sex couple. So I think that's, you know, more uh, what may happen. And I think another area that might expand, it, it, there's been a lot of expansion already, and that is age just age-restricted apartments. But age-restricted apartments of the future are not going to just be living facilities. They're going to be have supported services. Uh, today, one of the, you know, it's kind of disappointing, but because of the pressures of the economy and different things, you have a lot of seniors that are raising, in quote, grandchildren. You know, they, they are the ones responsible for getting them off to school, feeding them. You know, they're actually living with their grandparents. And I think this trend is going to continue now. If that individual wanted to live into a, in, in a senior's housing facility, you're not going to see, they're not allowed to today. Um, the rules are you have to be, you know, age 62 typically and over to have any long-term uh, residency in a senior's housing facility. So there could be a different type of senior's housing where you're going to have grandparents move in with maybe school-aged children, and that's going to require a whole different set of services than we have now in seniors' housing. You're going to have to have people who actually will work with the children and uh, maybe have, have some, some group recreation and maybe even some babysitting services and different things like that. And I think there could be a real good opportunity there, but it's not something that's high on anybody's chart right now to embark upon. And there's also some federal rules and regulations about what a senior's facility is. And most of it all requires that you have to have an uh, initial age of at least 62 or older. But I think it's definitely something to uh, consider for the future. So Excellent. Jim, thank you so much. I think that those are all very interesting points that I, I hadn't previously thought of, you know, more rural, more affordable kind of more suited to, to fit changing family dynamics. So thanks for sharing all of that, Jim. Uh, Brooke, is there anything you'd like to add on um, your, uh, your view of the senior living community of the future? Uh, 
So, yeah, one of the things that uh, Bob Kramer, who is the founder of the National Investment Center on Seniors Housing and Care, uh, talks about a lot is the fact that uh, there is this amazing entrepreneurial opportunity, particularly because of the fact that a lot of the boomers are not going to like what's out there. So there's a lot of things Jim talked about, which are definitely true. Uh, one thing that probably is also true is that boomers are not just going to move into the existing units that are there now, or they're not, not going to be comfortable there. There is beginning to be a lot of uh, interesting stuff that's coming on the market. There's a Margaritaville kind of model that's uh, looking at sort of the Jimmy Buffett lifestyle type thing. There's a, uh, a lot of places are getting approved in and around uh, college towns, and uh, you know some some have even kind of coined the Collegeville as one of the uh, other models because that's been a big thing that impacted boomers' lives. And so, trying to figure out ways to tap into that whole college kind of life experience. Uh, another thing that's out there that probably some boomers may get interested in. It's sort of picks up on some of the ideas for those who were involved with co-ops and things in the late sixties is the, um, the naturally occurring retirement community or village model, like they have in Cambridge uh, or Boston, I'm sorry, Beacon Hill. Uh, they have something sort of like that in Ithaca called love living at home, where you can sort of uh, volunteer hours while you're able-bodied and then uh, you can get potential help down the road. So that allows people to age in place more. And there are even uh, some uh, variations on independent that have been developed that have uh, more services on the sort of high-end side as opposed to the affordable side. That uh, There's one in uh, Ithaca that uh, Bridges Cornell Heights uh, just recently opened up that uh, was designed originally for sort of that um, affluent uh, early uh, getting close to retirement senior, but uh, they actually, it's interesting, they've, they've ended up marketing to people who are as much as 95, and uh, they're, they like the idea of being still independent, but right next door to a place that's an enhanced assisted living facility. So there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff out there that, that may happen over time. Another thing that's uh, going on, Jib talked a little bit about the um, uh, sort of senior apartment type things. There are some people who've developed models in urban areas that are uh, uh, boomers and others, I think, like the idea of being able to walk to things, especially during the years when they're still ambulatory. Um, and we may see more of those, although obviously COVID has made made the uh, some of those things a little less attractive. And it's going to be interesting to see how, how people work through that. But uh, but there, there's a lot of things smaller, I think, like Jim said, uh, there's, there's an interest in this sort of tiny house uh, movement and whether or not we're going to move to little cottage concepts or other things, there's there's a lot of interesting experiments that I think we're going to see over time. So it's, it's a it's a fascinating time, a lot of disruption because of COVID, but a lot of disruption that's going to happen because of boomers too. So, uh, uh, but I I know if if we have time, it might be interesting to talk about something that Jim worked on with some students looking at uh, an affordability model that used a variety of uh, government and uh, tax incentives. Uh, because that that is a huge area of need, as Tim talked about. Uh, so, anyway, those are just a few ideas. Yeah, thanks about. for that. Thanks for that, Brooke. I, I appreciate those specific examples and specific callouts of communities, especially in um, especially in the in the Ithaca area. And then just kind of springboarding off of that last point um, about COVID-related disruption. Um, have you found that that residents' families have like the, their perceptions have changed uh, post-pandemic about um, about seniors housing? And if so, 
um, are there adaptions that need to be made um, post COVID to allow residents and their families to feel um, more safe and comfortable um, in these communities? Yeah, I'll, I'll start out with a few ideas and then Jim can jump in maybe if that's, if that works. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, one, one of the things that a lot of people have done sort of uh, ad hoc is they've developed outdoor meeting areas for people, which uh, even in the colder climate, some were able to keep going with the uh, sort of uh, gas uh, mushroom heater type things or the flame power that people use in bars and outdoor restaurants. Uh, and I, I think that we're going to see variations on that theme. And uh, there's a lot of uh, sort of on the fly modifications that were done. There's a lot of stuff behind the scenes that people don't see uh, in terms of uh, ventilation and air filtration and uh, sanitizing and all that kind of stuff. All of that stuff will continue to go on. Uh, but, uh, but I think that um, the, uh, the architecture community is, is working really hard with uh, both the hospitality industry where a lot of the ideas can be applied uh, but certainly with a lot of different senior living providers and uh, coming up with a lot of, of interesting design tweaks. Uh, and and as, as new housing comes online, like Jim was talking about, I think there's, there's going to be a lot of really interesting ideas that are incorporated into the new designs coming forward. So anyway, I, I, won't, I won't go on too far. I'll let Jim jump in. Well, I, I want to build on that because one of the comments is, I mean, it might be kind of, funny to think about the concept, but you might put greenhouses in a center core where people can socially distance, um, but you have the open air feeling and they could be heated. Uh, you've seen a lot of different types of structures being built for restaurants where they can seat six to 10 people inside one of these structures or even be smaller. Um, I think you're going to see something like that. It could be patios built off of units on the outside where people might have the opportunity to meet. Because one of the biggest issues I think we have to address is we have to develop the facilities so that we avoid isolation of the seniors. That, if we've learned anything through this pandemic, whether it be in independent living, assisted, or the nursing home, we have, to, we have to find ways to avoid the total isolation. And I mean, one woman solved the problem in, I believe it was Seattle. Her mother was in a nursing home and um, she desperately wanted to see her mother. So she became a part-time employee of the nursing home. And she actually was able to see her mother obviously more often, but she got to like it so much that even now that the nursing home is opened up and allowing uh, people in, um, yes, in, um, she's staying there on as an employee and she's working in the food service. So, I mean, some ways, you know, people come up with creative ideas, but I think in the long term, if you look at facilities, we're going to probably have to do more of monitoring people as they come and go. We're going to have to have much better record keeping. Um, you know, I don't know how many places you've been where you go in, they take your temperature. Um, I know some people have told me they've gone in to go get a haircut or a, white, a woman goes in to get her hair done and she has to sign a register with her name and address and phone number so that they can do contract, a contact tracing. And I think, you know, those are the kinds of things that we're going to have to have 
testing and facilities, at least the ability to have a side room or set up where you can do that, uh, have that kind of service. You're going to have to have, you know, potentially wipes. Um, we're going to have to have hand sanitizers throughout the building. We're going to have to make it a bit different. Of course, every pandemic, every illness is different, but we were really caught flat-footed on this one. And whether the politicians acted appropriately or not, we can't let this happen again. Um, I think you'll start seeing residents being tested more often. Um, you know, universities, I'm sure Cornell tests everybody, I think, three to five days. I think you'll see that in facilities. You know, Atria was one of the most aggressive companies when it came to um, the uh, COVID. They went out early on and bought all the PPE they could, and they started testing residents and employees almost immediately, and they were providing masks and um, other facilities. I think one of the things that will definitely change in the structure of the buildings, we're going to have better air handling, you know, air conditioning systems, heating systems, and we're going to have a way to monitor the quality of the air and to be able to find out if there's anything indigenous to the air that's going through the building. I mean, all the articles that have been written about airplanes and how they turn the air over every several minutes and all of that. I think we're going to need to move more toward that in the seniors housing model uh, to make it a safer place. And not only, you know, the residential, but we're also going to have to be talking about the nursing homes. And it's going to be much harder in the nursing home industry because one, they don't have the capital, but two, you've got a lot of older buildings. But I think air handling is going to be critical going forward, turning over the air in the facilities. And I think they're going to have to be a way that we're going to also provide more services within the facility. Uh, you know, everybody says they have a place where grandma can get her hair done, but those need to be expanded. The men need a place to get their hair cut. Maybe we bring in entertainment into a facility, which means we may have to have another room um, because we want to avoid having residents have to leave the building or feeling a need to leave the building, um, having doctor's appointments. You know, some buildings do now, some don't. Uh, a lot of buildings have a, a bank uh, that has a facility in the uh, uh, <clears throat> seniors housing homes, but we're going to need to look at what what can we do to make life more comfortable for the resident and make the resident feel that he doesn't or she doesn't have to leave the property? And I think those are some of the um, ideas that are being thrown about. But I, I think one of the key is going to be how we handle the air and how we handle controlling people coming in and record keeping of those that have come into the building. Yeah, I think that's very insightful. And I know that part of the conversation about reopening schools has been similarly focused around air filtration. And so I'm assuming that that's going to continue being a big part of the conversation going forward. Um, Brooke, I want to pass it back to you real quick. And then Jim, I'll let you chime in sure. for 
students or, or young people who are, are considering a career in senior living, one, why should they consider it? And then two, how do we attract more people to this industry? Because I know, quite frankly, a lot of times there's a lot of staff shortages or the quality of staff at some facilities isn't always up to par because of that issue attracting employees. So how do we solve that problem as well? Yeah, that, that's a great, great uh, few questions there. So uh, really the, um, the inspiration of the course that I teach at Cornell was um, through a hotel school grad who had discovered this field and was kind of, uh, had, had been very successful in a, a prior uh, iteration of his business with a partner growing a big hotel chain and they sold it because his partner had some medical issues and he was kind of trying to decide what to do in the future. And so I think one of the things that, that he felt is that really the training that people get in hospitality or in healthcare management, all those kinds of skills are so applicable because really in some ways uh, the senior living business for the hospitality students is as much a hospitality business as it is a healthcare business in the lower ends of the acuity spectrum. And it, it's an opportunity to really make an impact that do well by doing good. And uh, most of the people who get into healthcare management do it because of the mission-driven part, and not so much with some of the other areas of management and hospitality, but but I think it's a real opportunity. And getting students to kind of discover this early on, I think, makes a big difference. Um, so the uh, that that's part of it. I think uh, looking at... Um, getting people exposed early on, whether it's in high schools or in undergrad. Uh, I've tried to do things through um, colloquium for the grad students or having speakers that come out with different student clubs and things like that. Anything we can do to get people to see role models who are in the industry who are doing well and, and like the impact that they're making, I think uh, is a good thing for people to do to try and get them exposed early on. There's a great program, uh, University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, which is a regional campus of the University of Wisconsin. They actually get a lot of students from smaller communities in the Midwest, and uh, they've come up with a great model, I think, uh, in that they uh, have a network of uh, organizations around the, uh, the Midwest that have decided that they're willing to take these students on. So they have kind of a preloaded set of internships, and they also are... Uh, preloaded to go into the uh, nursing home licensure track if they want to do that. They get the counting of hours towards their meeting the licensure requirements, and they have an opportunity to go back, in many cases, to their own community and become an administrator in training or, or ultimately take over at a, uh, some sort of a senior living facility in their town. So there's, there's a lot of different things that need to be done. I think it would be great, too, if TV, uh, if, they were, if they were successful and planning some more uh, kind of positive uh, uh, elder-related kinds of programming so that people could see multi-generational stuff and whether it's an opportunity to make an impact and how, uh, how the, the opportunity to avoid the problems of isolation really can empower people and all those kinds of things. So, you know, that, that's just something that we're going to be able to do overnight, but I think it's, uh, it's all good stuff that we could do. Uh, so I'm not sure if I answered all your questions, but uh, feel free to chime in if there's something I missed there. You did great, Jim. Yeah, I think uh, building off of what um, Brooke said, the University of Wisconsin program in Eau Claire is probably the best known, has a long history. Uh, it's really a good model for other colleges and universities to follow. Uh, they've developed a very strong curriculum. They actually have a major in 
seniors housing management and prepares an individual in practically all aspects of developing, operating, uh, financially understanding the dynamics of a senior's housing property. So I think that's that's one way, but I think we still, the universities need to reach out more to uh, the seniors housing community, to businesses, and encourage them to send people to the universities to interview and um, students and to talk about the, the, the opportunities within their company, and also to be guest lecturers, because especially now after this pandemic, the, the wealth of knowledge that people have gained, and I talked to a number of CEOs and the stories I hear are just unbelievable. You know, all the way from dealing with families, how to deal with employees, what you do when you don't have enough employees, um, how you deal with lenders, because obviously we'll hopefully talk about lending, but there's been a lot of issues with lenders in this whole thing so but we need to educate still um seniors housing executives as to students they don't think students are interested in seniors housing and it's like how do we get them motivated well on the other side i think the seniors housing folks need to come to the universities and you know they need to set up as um brooke said they need to set up summer internships. Uh, I know some companies are talking about it. Um, I know my friends at Capital Health Group, I think he told me a couple of weeks ago, he's gonna have like four interns next summer. Um, they're looking at it and companies throughout the United States are, are looking to have um, interns for the summer, albeit maybe not a lot, but uh, some interns. And I think we need to really encourage CEOs to come to the, or their human resources to come to the campuses and meet with students and talk about the industry because education is, is key right now. So those are kind of my thoughts. I think those are, that's great. And I know that for many of our colleagues in, uh, and, and Sloan and, and people I've spoken to elsewhere, senior living was kind of something that wasn't originally on a lot of people's radar, but as they learn more about it, become a lot more interested in it. So I think those are good solutions. Brooke, uh, I want to toss this next question to you. Um, mm -hmm. If I'm assuming, you know, I'm thinking in the future, I'm maybe putting a loved one in a senior living facility or helping them shop around. You know, a lot of people don't, do that very frequently. It's once something maybe you do once in your life. Um, so it's not like you can become a pro. So what are some things that people need to look for when they're looking for senior living facilities for their loved ones? Some things to watch out for, um, especially as elder abuse and, and problems along those lines become more and more talked about. Um, how do we educate people and make the right decisions for our loved ones? Yeah, there's no perfect answer on the right way to go about doing that. But I think uh, like a lot of things, uh, just like when you're trying to find a, uh, a medical provider, there uh, a lot of times word of mouth is very powerful to be able to check with people who work in some aspect of the industry. And that, that's a, a nice reason to 
to get involved and sort of build a little bit of a network so you have people you can reach out to and uh, and they can sometimes give you some ideas. Uh, there, there are also various people that have gotten involved in the community that, that know a lot about things like that. Uh, they're one of the former Cornell vice presidents who I know is uh, uh, a great guy. He's retired now, but he's an ombudsman with uh, uh, the community, one of the communities in, uh, in town where one of my, my colleagues went when he got sick. And, uh, and there, there's, it's, it's a place that has some challenges, but being able to reach out and talk to people like that who are ombuds people uh, in different communities, uh, there are area agencies on aging and various organizations that are out uh, in, in each community that you can find things out about. There's, there's actually a fairly significant amount of information that the government collects. Uh, it's more focused at this point on the nursing, skilled nursing side, but there is a thing called Nursing Home Compare, which uh, uses something similar to what they do with HCAPs for hospitals. So they collect information and you can look at it and they have a star rating system. And that's just one of many things to look at. It's not the only one, but it gives you a little bit of an idea of whether or not uh, somebody has had some, some challenges to the extent that uh, you're in a state that has some sort of regulatory overview on assisted living or memory care or various other kinds of facilities. Uh, sometimes you can request information if, they, if it's uh, publicly available on uh, reports on surveys and things like that. But I think a lot of it is getting out and, and speaking with residents and getting a sense for the, uh, the community. But I think it's really a combination of things. You know, some of it's looking through uh, publicly accessible information that you can get. Some of it's word of mouth and talking to people who work in the field and building a network and then uh, reaching out to different kinds of organizations. But but there's there's nothing like uh, once you have done that for a while to go out and actually have some hands-on uh, time with the individual organizations you're thinking about in your shortlist. Hopefully that, there are a few useful ideas. Jim, do you have anything you want to add to that? Well... I mean, elder abuse is like bank robbers. You're never going to eliminate bank robbing and you're not going to ever probably eliminate elder abuse. Most elder abuse, I mean, you have the care side of it, but you really, a lot of elder abuse comes from the families. And parents trust their kids probably, probably shouldn't say it, but they probably trust their kids more than they should. Um, because... A lot of the elder abuse, especially theft and not being having access to appropriate care levels and things like that is oftentimes driven by a family. Um, you can always have a financial person that takes care of your funds and takes it away from the family. Uh, I know people that have done that, they feel more comfortable and frankly, the kids don't want the burden. But there's also, I can tell you a number of cases where the elderly individuals have been really taken advantage of by their uh, children. And uh, it, it's, it's not something that I think we can actually stop because you're not gonna get parents to say, well, I don't trust my children. As far as the quality though in a facility for caregiving, I think we've learned a lot of lessons over the last few decades, but there still needs to be better screening of employees, especially caregivers, because a nurse can work in one state, have a problem, go to another state, get a job, nobody ever checks. And after a while you get almost tired of reading the stories of 
how many people have actually moved from one state to another and have continued providing you know, the same services, albeit sometimes it is a mistake in the caregiving or they've changed their attitude or they've stopped drinking too much or they've stopped taking drugs. But we need to do more in the background checks of all employees from you know, people in the kitchen all the way up to the executives so that we have a higher quality employee and one that we will never be concerned about that they uh, you know, are gonna be um, causing problems. And I think also in the facilities, we need to have more employee education. There are some organizations that are very good about employee education. They have continual programs throughout the year but there are a number of, uh, of operators that don't have it. And sometimes um, I know of one company that loves to hire certain people, I mean, people from another company because their education programs are so good, but they don't have the best reputation. So they get very well-trained people and they don't have to foot the bill. So, I mean, saying that uh, we need to build up opportunities uh, for education in the facilities. And I think too, to attract good people, quality people, we have to do a better job of outlining careers uh, where there'll be advancement opportunities. If somebody wants to get into development, but they wanna understand the building uh, operations first, let them get into it, let, let them work in the projects, uh, buildings, and then move into management and get into development, or if they want to get into finance or whatever. But I think a lot of young people would like to get into the business, but they have, all they can think of is they're going to change bedpans. Well, they're not going to change bedpans. There's a lot of other things that go on in a property. And these larger companies also have um, career paths, sometimes albeit they're not well-defined. And I think we need to, if we could better define career paths, I think we would attract more people to the industry, more young people. Excellent. Thank you, Jim. I think we're going to shift gears here for this last kind of section of the podcast into um, one of your areas of expertise, Jim, and that's financing. Um, Jim, would you mind touching on, um, you know, what some of the major financing vehicles that senior living develop, senior living developers lean on, um, along with the role of uh, REITs and their increasing footprint in the space as well? Well, uh, almost any type of lender is in this space. I mean, you name, name it, wealthy individuals have, are lending money to it, angel investors putting equity in. The, there are very few banks that do not lend to this industry, albeit some of them may not be able to do larger projects, but they can do local projects and communities. I mean, the two of the biggest financial sources is obviously Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae and HUD. I mean, HUD does a lot of buildings. They have to be licensed. Uh, and they also do more nursing homes. Uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac cannot finance nursing homes unless they're just a small portion of a senior's housing uh, operation. But, uh, you know, the lenders are all across the board. The pandemic has kind of brought up some roadblocks because uh, the smaller facilities, if they got hurt by occupancy, funds aren't available. Uh, they loan to value, the LTVs have 
drastically been reduced. I mean, typically you could get 75% uh, based on your historical. Now, you know, not only look at the historical, but you look at your current month occupancy, where you expect it to move, and you're doing some forward underwriting. And to see loan-to-value loans today in the 60% to maybe 65% is not at all uncommon. So, but I, it's a broad-based uh, business. I mean, it's er, years ago, nobody wanted seniors' housing because they thought it was too risky. But if you go back and look at when we've had, you know, any type of recession in that, the industry that has held up the best has always been seniors housing it, it, because part of it's need driven, but the aging population is there. It's continuing to grow, will continue to grow. And it, it's, it's been a business that has, you know, while occupancies may slip a bit, it, it, they don't slip that much. And you have very low levels of default across the board. Um, right now, construction financing right now would be difficult to get at any fairly high level. It's, you're gonna get at best 50 to 60%. So that's gonna put pressure on you to get mezzanine debt, which is the bridge between your first mortgage debt and your equity level. Mez lenders, I mean, REITs, some of the REITs are Mez lenders. There are Mez funds um, out there. Um, again, wealthy individuals, a lot of them would like a higher yield, so they're doing MES funds. Uh, you know, investment funds will do MES debt. So I think the, the key is for a operator developer to get financing, you know, he can't just put in, you know, sweat equity and maybe a sliver of uh, equity. He has to come or she has to come to the table with at least 10%, I would say, equity into a project, uh, maybe a little bit more depending on the background and, and how, how well they weathered this pandemic. Uh, but your financing today is, for construction is, is, is not real strong. Um, we've seen through the pandemic that cap rates have increased and we're not doing it off of, you know, T12, trailing 12 months, it's being more uh, calculated on maybe T1, T3, and then looking forward to how um, the property will, will come back in the future. You know, there's been very little marketing because we, have, we haven't been able to allow people into buildings. This is not something that is easy to market and sell without taking a look at it. You know, it's like, it's not... You know, you go buy a pair of shoes, you wanna try them on. You wanna buy a car, you wanna take it for a drive. And nobody's been able to really get into these facilities. They're starting to now open up and do more marketing. But, you know, without getting too far off the topic, one of the things companies have done, they have developed good uh, marketing materials where you can go online, you can see not just the pretty pictures of the buildings with some residents here and there, but you can actually see videos of what goes on in the facilities, better video, videos of the interiors and things like that. But in the REITs, I mean, the REITs, you know, they fall out of favor and then they fall in favor, but 
the REITs are really been a mainstay for this industry because while a lot of folks sold to the REITs because they wanted to get out of the business, there are a lot of very successful organizations and developers that have sold their properties to the REITs, taken back management contracts, and they've gotten equity through the sale. And, you know, it, it, it has been an opportunity, a vehicle for them to be able to expand and build more. There are a number of companies that depend on the REITs for that. And, and the REITs sometimes will, depending on their appetite and where they are with capital, may co-invest with a developer into a property because they're ultimately probably going to own it anyhow. Now, some developers would rather just develop the property themselves, get it up to stabilized occupancy, and then turn it to a REIT and they would get their maximum gain. But if you want to expand, you don't have the wherewithal, and selling properties to the REIT, having the REITs co-invest, become a long-term partner, um, that's an excellent way, way of doing it. So um, the, REITs, the REITs are not going away, that's for sure. Um, you know, and they also want more premium properties. The sector of the industry with the REITs are not in favor of, and that's the nursing homes. It's very difficult to get a premium price um, for a nursing home in a REIT. They, they will buy them as part of a portfolio if you have both seniors housing and nursing homes they, and you wanted to sell, um, they may take a look and, and buy the nursing homes there. Some of the REITs have spun off their nursing homes into separate uh, organizations and they manage them slightly different than they do um, you know, the medical office buildings, their seniors housing properties and things like that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very informative from, especially from a guy like myself who, uh, has about the finance knowledge of a stray cat. Um, so that's, that's very helpful, um, and, and super informative. Um, you kind of answered our next question just a little bit, Jim, about, um, impacting during the pandemic. So it's all right with both of you. Um, so we leave enough time for you to answer our last question. We'll jump into that. Brooke, we'll start with you. Um, and it's a question that we ask every guest, uh, on our podcast, which is what's a tool that health future aspiring healthcare leaders should add to their toolkit. Uh, in terms of like a uh, management skill or a yeah. knowledge item or whatever, um, I, I think just in general, uh, all people, uh, whether or not they decide to make senior living a focus of their career, uh, I think it's a really important thing to understand uh, because various parts of the system are going to be important parts of your role, whatever you do down the road. Uh, home care in particular is likely to be a bigger and bigger activity and the interaction between that part of the system, whether it's a, a wholly owned, if you're working in a healthcare organization that has its own a home care provider uh, or a relationship with somebody, whether it's uh, post-acute facilities that people look at and the relationship between the discharges, especially around readmissions and things like that. It's just It's one of those areas that it's just useful to understand something about how the system works and so to the to the extent that they can get some exposure to learn a little bit more about the ins and outs of the process uh there's there's a, a, a huge misconception too uh you know just from a personal level it's useful because a lot of people still think that it's paid for by medicare 
which is definitely not true. It's only in very rare cases right after hospitalization that you get some rehab uh, post-hospitalization coverage in a nursing home or something like that. Uh, and there is some hope in the future with Medicare Advantage that uh, Medicare Advantage plans will be tailored, uh, plans that are run uh, by groups of facilities, and there may be some interesting options, but, but people tend not to plan for it. So both, both from an understanding around the relationship and management of the people across the continuum of care, it's important to know. But also on a personal level, I think people should, you know, start their planning early on because most people have not put aside enough money to plan for this, and uh, and working with family members to kind of think about uh, how they're going to plan for that, both from the things like you were talking about and uh, trying to find a good place for someone to go, but also just in terms of their own personal planning because it takes many many years to build up an asset base or have a long-term care policy in place or any number of other things to be prepared. So I think just general, those those knowledge facts about the field, I think are an important thing for people on an individual basis and, uh, and for their career. Yeah, very informative. Jim, if you could recommend a toolkit or a tool to add to a toolkit, what would you uh, suggest? Well, what, the skill that almost everybody who develops and operates goes in with is they know their facilities, they know their employees, but as the companies get larger, they step back further and further and further away. And they really, I think some need to get, you know, almost like undercover boss. They need to go into the facilities, their properties, see the residents, see the employees and look at it to see if they're really understanding the issues that the employees are, are living with. You know, when you get 50 facilities or more, it's very difficult to stay in touch with the caregiving, the food delivery service. You know, you, you become a person that becomes very road of looking at, you know, the cost per meal, you know, so many FTEs in a building in this, but you need to, I guess you could use also the word empathy. You need to understand and remember what the employees are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. And I, I would encourage more C-suite folks to really stay in touch with their residents, with their people who are marketing and with generally with their employees. Wise words indeed. Well, gentlemen, thank you both for taking time to join us on the Health Conscious Podcast. It was super informative and great to hear from both of you about this topic. Thank you so much for uh, doing this. Uh, I think it's yeah, wonderful you. that you've uh, put together this program and uh, thanks for including us. Absolutely. My pleasure. And for those of you listening, thank you. We'll see you in two more weeks.